your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson, James Boyman, and Ryan Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Alex and Ryan. That's right. The three amigos together once again. It's been a little while. Hopefully, Alex was able to tide you over with his space recording the other week, but we are very pleased to be back in the studio together recording our 21-22 Everton squad slash team assessment. Often imitated, never duplicated. We are going to go through kind of the same type of stuff we've done the last couple of years with the squad assessment. Um, first, we're going to start with take, doing the takeaways from our squad assessment last year. Look at you know what were the main things we hoped the Everton would do and how did we do at executing on those various bullet points. Um, there's obviously a lot going on at the club right now between Kevin Thelwell kind of build, building out or rebuilding the football side of the operations. You saw today Gareth Prosser was appointed academy director. Leighton Baines appointed U18 manager. A lot of transfer rumors floating around, but we're not actually going to get into any specific names in terms of links today, we're going to focus specifically on the team performance over the last year. And my God, gentlemen, it is a tad painful having looked through the numbers. But uh, before we get into that, just a reminder that we are less than a month away from Everton coming stateside to Baltimore and Minnesota. We are all very excited. We will be at the match in Baltimore. So hope to see many of you there. If you do plan to be there, please reach out. Let us know. You can join our Discord, invite.gg slash ATP. We got a lot of planning going on in that channel and in the server. A lot of people are going to be there. And you can also follow us on all social media at uh, linktr.ee slash USA Toffee Pod for all of the links. Now, with that said, with all of that said, before we get into the team assessment, Alex first. Have you guys been since the season ended? It's been, uh, I think it's been almost a month since we recorded last, which is a really long time for us. I feel oddly happy and content. Um, it's been boring. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've read about Everton literally every single day. Um, and I'm really excited to get into the squad assessment as well. But uh, it's been it's been a, a pretty good break. I'm excited. I'm getting really excited to see how transfers kind of um, play out, obviously. And otherwise, um, I'm excited to see everyone in Baltimore and, and hang out with you guys. So it should be a lot of fun. What about you, Ryan? I'm just here to help the team and good lord willing things will work out i just don't want to get fined that's why i'm here <laughs> no pain no pod as we said shortly before jumping on the <laughs> yeah i mean let's, let's be honest i've been cranking out numbers to the team assessment this whole time what are you talking about and ryan's also right now at this exact moment hunched over a laptop and microphone in Cape Cod <laughs> while his family, I think, is watching what Sonic the Hedgehog was downstairs. Two, the sequel. I've been told that it's really, really good by my 12 year old cousin. It's a really good movie. You guys should watch it. So, um, you know, how you have those friends that watch a lot of movies or, you know, listen to music and they tell you that you should watch this. It's really good. And you would never, ever do that. Um, but there's some that you would. Um, I, I love my cousin. He's a great, great kid. Truly, probably a nicer, more pleasant kid than my own. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take his word for that one. No offense to him. I'm not upset that I'm missing it. He'd much rather be on the mic doing the squad assessment with Alex and I. I think that's a uh... slightly better position, though. This is gonna be brutal. Let's hope I can make <laughs> it through. But anyway, we'll have to take a couple intermissions for the sake of Ryan's back. But we will not take an intermission this early on in the pod. Let's get right into it, Ryan, and we'll start. 
as I said, with kind of a summary of last year's squad assessment, we did this shortly after the Red Saboteur had been appointed and we kind of had an idea. You know, I, you've, you've said, Ryan, in preparing for this, that it's a very different beast doing this with someone like Frank Lampard, who has much less managerial history versus someone like Rafa Benitez, who had decades upon decades of previous transfers and tactics and team setups that you could go through. But let's take a run through kind of the general high level bullet points that we took from the squad assessment last year. Yeah, I think the biggest concerns that we had was just the inability to progress the ball up the pitch. Uh, we had no dribbling progression either, and we just couldn't create very well from open play. Now, look, that's that's relative to the team's performance, right? Because this is a team that had 59 points and, you know, had, you know, finished 10th, whatnot. So, so these were, you know, we were trying to address, okay, solutions, Rafa comes in. What can we do better? And I think a lot of our focus were, you know, we got to get the ball into the final third and the penalty area more often and create more chances. So we kind of came up with some solutions and some we knew Rafa wouldn't quite implement in the same way as someone like Carlo Ancelotti would or Frank Lampard for that matter. And we went through and uh, and what I thought would be fun is kind of revisit that a little bit and say, hey, did we did we solve those problems? Because if we didn't, they're left over. But yeah, Frank would solve them in a different way. Um, and we'll get to that you know, as we kind of go through the, the aspects of the team from this year's performance, but look, I mean, the first solution was improve the players at right wing and right back, you know, players that are more progressive, aggressive, that can cross, that can dribble, you know, help us push back defenses and kind of get another wide threat via the cross to spread out the pitch. And because we had Dean at the time, but we really didn't have that, you know, top flight right back. And if you remember, Seamus was hurt a lot of last year. Um, and so really, I mean, I, I think, you know, our thought was, look, we looked at how bad Holgate and Godfrey were in attack and how absent we were in terms of those things, progression when they played. So, you know, moving Coleman to spot starter, how did we address that? So the question is, did we address that? Cause we all knew, all of us knew going into the season that we needed a right back. I would say we didn't, I mean, certainly didn't dress it right away. Right. No, not at all. And I'm, I mean, it's frustrating because we're talking about right wing and right back, both positions we've needed since like 2018. I think the last prominent player in the right wing we had was Balassi. So there's that, right? And obviously right back. I mean, we failed with many, many different attempts at that. But, uh, you know, Patterson, like he was working his way into the team for a couple of months. And then I think we, we heard that he was due to start. Then he gets injured for the rest of the season. And, and that was, you know, that was frustrating really as well. Um, but obviously we saw Kenny plug in sometimes and that was clearly not the answer as he's gone now. I mean, the good part is I think that Frank seems to have a pretty good relationship with Kevin. Um, it sounds like they're on the same page. Kevin has been given the freedom to kind of build his football side. So you're not going to have the issue last year where Marcel Brands had lined up multiple options at right back and for Benitez ultimately to step. I mean, if you believe what Patty Boylan's writing at the athletic, I mean, ultimately, you know, the decision was made not to go with, uh, you know, Livermento was the one that Patty's called out and, and Dumfries was the one that they had done earlier. Um, and neither of those came to fruition. So I think that that was a problem. And I think it's been that way. Now, obviously we've moved for Nathan Patterson, right? And, and I think he's a very talented young player, but he got hurt at the end of the year. I mean, I think he was scheduled to go in there and start and play. So I think I think that still is is lingering, like you said, Alex. Now, we maybe have a solution right back, but we just don't know quite yet, right? There's just such a, such a level of uncertainty there. With Even if he does start to get minutes and play consistently, can he perform at a level that 
know, Seamus Coleman really didn't have a horrible season last year, despite being put out more often than anyone, including himself, would have liked. You really are looking for that long-term successor, and hopefully Patterson can develop over the next few months. And But we're not in a position where we can let this kid sort of you know, try his trade. We need consistent production from that position as soon as possible. And so I'm hoping to see more of Patterson this year. Is he the answer to plug right into and solve all of our right back problems? Not necessarily. And then you look at the other things, you know, we did a right wing. We brought Andrews Townsend in as like a budget option who did okay at first and sort of obviously the terrible injury that happened, but not nearly enough to really address those huge gaping holes in the squad. And I, th- I think the second point here is a really interesting one because we saw a little bit of it. Number two solution was to deal with progression and, and creation. Play a holding mid like Bameen, Delph, even Tom Davies did it a little bit when we we were the better side and push Allen to Corey higher. And that's a little mixed because Benitez didn't do it um, until much later. I mean, he got finally realized he couldn't keep persisting with his all that space between the lines, James, would you call it the gap, right? The gap. It's the gap, man. The gap. Um, not the store either. The one no. that makes you concede goals. No, not the gap band either. Who we know and love, but yeah. So, um, and you could tell when Delph came in, especially under Frank, which Frank was, you know, wanted to experiment and try a little bit to kind of hold the ball at times. It was a massive improvement. And even when he came in under Rafa, the game changed. I mean, I remember that Wolves game in particular where we just got, tactically outdone for the first 37 minutes so badly he almost felt forced to change and it was that change that really we we played very well the second half in that match i mean he still didn't do things perfectly right we'll get to some of those things like with the Wobie and townsend but um yeah i think that really hurt us so i i think that's still out there i think it's very obvious that some of our midfielders still profile better with having that player that safety net behind them um but yeah, we'll see that. I mean, you know, I, I think we'll get to that when we get into the assessment, really break down how we think Frank's going to play. But, you know, I, I think it was very obvious this year, even though it was mixed results in that, that I think some of those guys do play better with that player behind them. I mean, do we agree with that? And 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 clearly that was responsible for some of the performance issues this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think you could argue both Alon and uh, Ducore are better as an eight, which I think we've seen, although Alon like has been, you know, an acting six for, I feel like the majority of his games when he does play, um, at least in recent times, which has been frustrating. I think he's okay uh, in possession at the six. You know what I mean? I think he can drop oh, yeah, back and get sure. the ball. I think it's the for defensive sure. end where, especially since we right. didn't have much of the ball this year, where it was really magnified, I think. Right. But I'll, yeah. And, and then, and then also he doesn't have as much effect, um, you know, in forward play, like when he's trying to sit back a little deeper. Um, but yeah, it was clear, and and we saw that kind of with Delph too. I thought um, he made some of the other players, sp- specifically like Ducore, look better in the minuscule amount of you know performances we got from him this season. And it kind of leads to point number three too, because if the idea is to have that player there so your midfielders can be up in space, receive a ball in more advanced areas, because remember this was to get the ball in the final third and stuff. That makes sense. The other way to do that that we talked about was number three: more aggressive center halves to close the gaps behind those two midfielders. And that also helps with progression because you're stealing it and you're able to move the ball. And, you know, I I think you could add a little bit more ball playing too from those center halves. But look, that I think was a massive issue all year, right? The gap was always there, James. And, And, but that's not all just the midfielders, right? I mean, part of that is the center backs need 
to push up and fill that gap sometimes. And let's be honest. I mean, Mina didn't play very much. He's probably our most competent player in that regard. But were you guys surprised a little bit of how poorly Ben Godfrey played under Rafa? And, 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 you know, it's hard to tell, like, whose fault was that gap where we got exploited so much last year, especially under Rafa? Was it the unwillingness of the center halves to step up? Um, was it Mina being out so you didn't have that safety net? What do you guys think it was focusing specifically on the center back play? Yeah, well, I think specifically in regard to Ben Godfrey, you look at a player who came into Everton now two seasons ago and was very popular, won a lot of fans over, but he didn't actually play as a center half a ton. He was more often played in wide positions. I think you saw last season a player when he was even fit who's still very much a raw article at center back. He's not the finished product. And so some of this, he, there's no no doubt he possesses all the raw athleticism and pace that you could potentially want. And he certainly has, from an athletic standpoint, the ability to close that gap. But I think positionally, he's still so raw. And I think the way in which our midfield shaped up, and you're looking at guys, you know, playing alongside Michael Keane a lot of the season, who is certainly, we know, one of his biggest faults is that he's strong in a low block. But when he's asked to play more expansively and get into more of a high line, that's when he gets exposed a lot of the time. So I think it was the personnel. Mina being out, our best center back for most of the year, didn't help. And then, you know, Ben Godfrey had a bunch of individual errors, I think, just getting caught out of position, especially in the first half of the season before he got hurt. Yeah, he he definitely looked a, a touch slower this season as well. And, you know, he had he did have COVID and then there were articles and whatnot or correspondents talking about how they felt it was a long COVID, which, you know, I think to anyone's eye looked um, as long as you watched him, you know, the season previously, it probably checks out. Um, also, it's like a footnote for his performances. But um, either way, I think he he can only go up from from there, though. I think that's a good point. And number four for us is pressure more as a defense you know, lead to more turnovers in their half, turn it around and score more as a result. Ben Gottfried is clearly the type of player that has the recovery pace to play higher. Um, does he have the anticipation? Does he have the instincts? I, I, I don't know. He did play a higher line at Norwich. Now I got destroyed on that team because they were so just bad. not the best. Well, I felt bad for him. You'd watch sometimes too. I, I thought he actually profiled as a good ball playing center half too. And, and, for some of his other deficiencies, I would think that he would work well in that type of scheme. So, but, but pressuring more as a defense is something that Rafa did, but in a very different way, right? I mean, he wasn't, we weren't pressuring up kind of in the attacking third, um, which is really what, what we meant. So um, it's worth mentioning the numbers real quick. I mean, um, so we did pressure a lot. Technically we had 167 pressures per 90. That's second in the premier league. But in the attacking third, it was only eighth in the league, second in the middle third, and third in the defensive third. And our success rate was not good. It was 29.8%. That's ninth in the league. So we pressured mostly kind of in that mid area. Uh, teams could basically hang on to the ball at will against us in their own end. Now, Frank tried to change that a little bit. And so the idea of pressuring more as a defense, if we think of it in more in the vein of attacking third, you know, getting up forward. Now, Frank did try to do that in several instances. Now, some games, some matches, we came out like wildfire and looked great and created some things, didn't finish it, and then just got toasted. So I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, is this team really capable of pressuring high the way he wants? If they're healthy, maybe. Um, and some of the stuff isn't sustainable, too. So you can't pressure like crazy. I think pressuring more is probably a better idea higher 
but I think some personnel changes might have to happen. I'm kind of curious if you guys think that's a viable solution for this team. I think we'll see it at times. Um, and obviously, look, there are many different ways to solve problems, but ultimately we did pressure more, but we didn't pressure in the right way last year, but I'm not so sure we have the personnel to do that. So I'm kind of curious what you guys are thinking about that. Well, I think that in terms of the pressure, it only, and we'll get into the numbers very shortly surrounding this, you can pressure all you want and we didn't do it very effectively when we did do it. And even if you win the ball back, we didn't have the players to retain possession after winning it back. So you win it back to then immediately hoof it long and give it right back to the opposition immediately. So in, in the terms of our tactical scheme, even if we did pressure high and effectively, it may not have led to the best results. Um, That's a good Do we point. have the we personnel? Just... Yeah, I think you know so much of this past season, we saw an overrun midfield. It's really hard to pressure when they've got more options in the middle of the, the field than you have defenders to mark them. That makes things really difficult. But I do think we've seen in Frank's history, short history as a manager, that that is a style he wants to play. And hopefully we can put out a tactical formation that will allow us to create those opportunities and then bring some players in who can possess the ball and actually keep it away from the opposition because otherwise you're just running around. You're, you're maintaining a high level. You just can't maintain that energy levels needed to be off the ball and pressure intensely for 90 minutes every week. Yeah. I mean, there's a way you can do it, but I think when we get in the numbers, you'll see that even, even, you know, we lost a lot of duels up high, played a lot of long passes, but if your team collectively is not up there to maybe at least win second balls on that, it's not going to work. So, I mean, if you're going to pressure high, it's got to be a coherent system. And it's got to be done collectively. It's just too hard. Now, that being said, I think we have some of the personnel to do it, depending on the fates of Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Luna in particular. There aren't too many guys with his size that can hold up the ball the way he can. And yes, he's still evolving in that way, but that can also press her and run the way he can. So I think we've got some of the tools to do it. I think you know Gordon can do it to a certain extent as well, um, but it's got to be a collective uh, approach, right? I mean, I think that's... That's absolutely critical. Um, Alex, any last words on that one before we get to the fifth and final solution that we had that was really didn't happen at all or in just such a strange way? No, I think uh, just the obligatory, you know, it was <clears throat> a grueling season for a lot of players, as we all know, like with a different type of schedule. And then obviously, as we'll dive into the numbers, we had so many injuries that, you know, some of these guys did stay healthy for pretty significant chunks of time. And, and you know, that like their energy levels, as James mentioned, I mean, it's kind of hard to keep it up when you're playing constantly. If you're one of the healthy ones and then you've got guys coming in and out of injury constantly, it doesn't make for uh, a good result. And, and you're right. The injuries did kill us. So our fifth one was play the more progressive creative players, which makes sense, right? We need to be more progressive. We need to create it more. sounds so simple play. when you say it, right? It does, doesn't it? So, so what did we say? This is the funny part. We said, play Bernard. We even put Andre Gomes in here because actually he was more creative in that role than some others. We said, play Bernard, basically a Wobie, Delph, or literally anyone in front of Gilfie Sigurdsson. Now, the response to that was somewhat, somewhat mixed, right? Because, well, we didn't play Gilfy. Um, wasn't a tactical decision. Sadly, sadly, well, I shouldn't say sadly. I'm not going to try and comment too much on that. But the point is he actually might have done better as a 10 in Rafa's setup because we really didn't have one because he refused to play a Wobi. Um, but look, I mean, if you want to play the more progressive creative players, who did we move out? Dean, James, Bernard. I mean, Bernard is actually creative. A lot of people don't believe that, but it's true. 
I mean, even Andre was injured and he can't play in a two uh, that Rafa would play. Awobi was played out wide instead of the inside when Andrews Townsend was played on the inside. It was so strange. He refused oh. to play Awobi in the 10. I just I I never got that out of my memory. I just the Townsend at the 10 rule, man. That was like. It's crazy. You play Townsend inside and Awobi outside. Like, talk about a fundamental misunderstanding of a player. Um, yeah, I, ju- I just think that's it. That's so if, if those are your options, I mean, we did none of those things. And even worse, we ended up moving out some of the guys that we thought would like automatically be selected. So we not only didn't play the more creative players, we lost a bunch of them. So now we did have some additions that guys were somewhat effective. And I know the schema is a little bit different and they did a good job shortly, but ultimately we were just short on players that were progressive and creative to begin with. And I mean, the, the interesting thing is, and we'll get to the numbers a little bit later, is a guy like Awobi, when Frank came in, kind of energized him. And Delft did come in and help a lot in those regards. Um, but we were just shorthanded in general due to injuries and then due to player player attrition. I mean, I think that's a lot of what – so we didn't even have the option to play the more progressive creative players because we lost so many of them. I mean, isn't that – I mean, this is a big part of why we – certainly why we didn't score a lot of goals this year. Look, if you got – if you if you sell all of your creative output, I think between Hamez and if you, if you, even if you include Gilfie in there, which most of his stuff was from set pieces, Hamez, Dean, and Gilfie, it was like it was like sixty six percent of our expected assists from the season prior. That, that number is not exact, and don't hold me to it. But the point stands that it was a huge amount of our actual creative output, guys creating chances, and that was just sold for pretty much pennies when you when you break it down to the financial side of things. Um, and as you said, Ryan, it's understandable that we would have struggled to create having offloaded most of our actually competent creative players. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a lot of it. So, so look, so we looked at those five solutions. Not a lot of them came to fruition. Um, and those were our suggestions for doing stuff under Rafa. But look, let's be, let's be different. I mean, this year, let's be honest, we've got a different approach. And um so I, I think it's interesting. We're going to break down the performance this year. Um, we're going to go in the overall and we'll look at, we'll look at the offense first. Then we're going to really get down to it and try and identify much like we did last year. Is it progression? Is it creation from open play? Is it just other basic things? What is it really? And why weren't we better? Um, and we can do this now knowing that we have a manager. We've seen somewhat how we think he's going to play. And I think the best way to look at it is very simple. Every one of those areas, when we break it down, and this is for the listeners to try and keep this organized, because God knows all three of us can be talking about virtually anything for extended periods of time. Um, We're going to talk about, okay, when we find these issues, like number one, can we solve it with the current players and playing them differently? Can we solve it through tactics? Or three, do we have to go out and get players? So it's really play the better players. Will that work? Change in tactics. Or number three, recruitment. So that's kind of going to how we're going to look at all these things. And hopefully at the end of all of this, we can kind of come up with some profiles too that will help us as we get all these crazy transfer rumors to say, does this player make sense? You know, And assuming we are going to diagnose this perfectly well, which I'm sure we will because we're perfect and we never screw up at all. We always get it right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. All right. That's not true. Uh, anyway, the point is that's what, our, that's what we're going to attempt to do. Uh, we'll see how well it's going to work. But first, before we get into that, let's have a short and brief word from our sponsors. 
Okay, so we're back, and uh, let's start just with the overall numbers for the team, and then we'll slowly kind of break it down into more discrete levels and see if we can't figure out what the heck went wrong. Um, obviously, it will be one of many things because a lot went wrong, but let's talk about the overall results. We finished 16th. Now, I got to admit, that was hard to imagine that ever really happening to Everton, at least in the modern era. Uh, 39 points, that is not a good number. Goal differential of negative 23. Now, the expected goal differential, according to our friends at StatsBomb, was only negative 11.7. Now, that's not great. Still 13th. Uh, Scout had us as expected points at 48.12. So, look, that is a bit of a difference. Is that just bad luck? I mean, I felt like sometimes that, you know, we generated more chances and maybe didn't score. And, I, you know, I, I just... It's hard, though, for me to say that it was bad luck when I just felt like the side was so disappointing in so many levels. It was almost like, I mean, how many times in the pod do we say, God, we deserve what we get, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think any any sane Everton fan or attempting to be sane Everton fan would say, yeah, it was partially bad luck. But I also think, um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like injuries was a huge part of it. it I mean, we, we can't understate how, you know, how much we missed a lot of key guys, you know, for example, like Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And then you look at in injuries, no doubt. And we'll talk plenty about injuries. <laughs> we were just really bad. I think part of it also that plays a role, you know, but that doesn't explain the fact that our actual goal differential was almost cut in half when you look at expected goal differential. So we were just having, I think, playing against a lot of teams that were making really good shots, converting not great chances into good goals. And, you know, there's some defensive errors at play, some of our leaky defending. Um, but we just, I, in, in any Evertonian who watches this season, between the refereeing decisions, between the, some of the goals we conceded, you'd have no trouble convincing them that there was a lot of bad luck in pretty much everything that could go wrong against Everton this past season basically did, which is how we find ourselves or found ourselves in a relegation battle and escaping by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. But look, I, you know, the bottom line is that we're going to, when we get into the different facets of the numbers, I think you can see how the expected versus actuals, what explains that a little bit, but look, no matter what you say, that difference that's great and all, but even the expected numbers aren't good to, to Alex's point. I mean, the injuries killed us and it's hard to argue that. I mean, look at these numbers for heaven's sakes. I mean, we use 33 players in the premier league in matches. That's in matches. That's the most in the league. No position player for Everton played more than 2,800 minutes. Only Leicester can say that, but they also had European competition. So you had like Tealman's that didn't have 2,800 minutes, but he played more than 4,000 over the year. You know, and like Madison and Soyunku played over 3,600. So their, their guys were more healthy. So that's almost misleading. So there's no question we had the biggest injury issues of anyone. Now, we had injury issues last year, though, too. I mean, truly. And Carlo was very pragmatic about that and got some results as a result. And maybe that was part of the issue. But God, look at it comparatively. I mean, Burnley got relegated and only played 23 players. Palace, 24. Spurs, West Ham, Southampton, 25. That's it. I mean, that's eight more players we had to scramble around and play in the Premier League. Now, some of that is is preference. You know, some guys, Rafa was stubborn and wouldn't play. But I mean, look, that's the one thing that people forget about in these numbers. That's just, you know, that you can't pick that apart. That's just baked in there, you know? And you're talking about injuries and having to play 33 players in a squad that's like 14 players deep at best, maybe. Maybe a little more than that, maybe a little less. But you're talking about 
going 20 guys who really shouldn't be getting minutes at all having to come in and play significantly. So we saw, you know, you saw the, the odd cameo appearance from a Lewis Dobbin, from an Onyango, but then it was guys that had to play regularly that we ideally wouldn't see. Like I think Branthwaite played a little too much this year for most people's liking and wouldn't be in an ideal circumstances, probably should have been out on loan, getting regular game time and improving himself. So 33 players is just mind boggling. And it's even compounded with the fact that we're going against sides often that are able to roll out at least 10 or 10, if not 11 of the same players week in week out. I don't think anyone thought we would have even seen Anthony Gordon get maybe a quarter of the minutes he did this year. That's a great point. If it like, you know, uh, I just got to leave it at that, to be honest. I don't, I don't have anything better to say. <laughs> well, and, and look, he, he did better and improved, but that's a great example. That's that's a kid. You know, that's I don't know if that's the best way to I mean, nice introduction into the Premier League, you know, just have at it, kid. I mean, that's hard. I mean, that's you're asking a lot. Um, so, look, I mean, you look at those numbers, too, and we're not making any sort of reference to the attack or the defense. What was the bigger problem? So let's just start with the attack and kind of break it down from there. And, you know, I know it's hard to separate the two. Soccer is a fluid, fluid game. Football is a fluid game. Fine. Um, but let's start with the attack. I mean, goals four, 43 goals scored. That was 13th in the league. Expected goals was 42.8. That was 15th. That's not good. And the net penalty expected goals. 37.5. That was 16th. So those aren't good numbers. Um, and then if you look at the actual goal scored and kind of broke them down, the things that jump out at you is open play. We only scored 23 goals from open play. That's 16th in the league. I mean, that is a really low number. We scored 10 from set pieces as much as we complained about set pieces. That was actually 11th in the league. So relative to how we did from open play, that was actually better. We had six penalties this year, wow. right? I felt like we had none last year. Yeah. You know? I think we had like um, two. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. And look, and we didn't produce the goals from so, like corners. We were awesome at last year. This year, I think we only had five or 12th, you know, um, didn't score a lot outside the p- penalty area. We, we scored nothing from direct free kicks. A lot of people point to that, but I mean, the best was only four. So, I mean, th- there were six other teams that didn't score from free kicks. That's not that big a deal, but I think it begs to ask the question, okay, why the heck didn't we score more? I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to kind of decompose things at. So I think the first element you always look at just basically is shooting, you know, just shooting. How well did you do with the chances you had? And so, you know, the common um, way to look at this is just look at non-penalty goals scored versus non-penalty expected goals. It's a simple metric, right? And we were a negative 1.5 differential. So all that simply means is based on historical chances that are similar, we didn't quite finish as well as maybe we should. And that makes us 12. That's about average, though. That's about average. Um so it maybe that that would lend you to believe initially, like, okay, well, maybe the finishing wasn't that big a deal. So was it we just didn't shoot enough or we just didn't create chances? And that's pretty much it. Then you start looking at these numbers. I mean, shots per 90 were 15th. Shots on target percentage was 16th. So look, we didn't shoot that much. And when we did shoot, we didn't have to, <laughs> we didn't put it on target. So yeah, sure, of the shots that went that that we took, we scored some goals on. It's actually pretty amazing that. Our actual goals were as high as it was compared to the expected goals. Um, the expected goals is calculated off shots. You don't shoot, you don't do it. But yeah, I mean, think about this though. Of all of the five clubs below us in shots per 90, all but Norwich and Burnley had a higher shot on target percentage. So that's not good. Um, and the weird part is too, our average shot distance was 17 yards. It's only 11th. So we had free kick shots. We had a bunch of free kick shots because we drew a bunch of fouls. 
we're seventh in the league there. So, you know, we we're fouled 12.2 times per 90 and that was seventh in the league. So you're just kind of sitting there thinking like, hmm, maybe the shooting wasn't as much of the problem, but look, we still didn't shoot enough. I mean, how can you argue that? I mean, open play shots were 15th in the league. So what do we think here? Is this just a, is this a finishing issue? I mean, the lack of shots on target is one that does stand out. I mean, 16th, you figure if you're not going to shoot that often, I mean, you think some of your shots were decent chances. And with all the free kick shots we had in the, in the relative short distance, I mean, that shots on target is pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrible. You think, right? Like some teams, it's a concerted strategy to be very patient around the box and wait till you get a really clear cut chance and then then you shoot. And so you might have, you know, lower shots per 90, but a higher shot on target percentage. We were terrible in both, right? We were right around the bottom quarter of the league. And the only two clubs that took fewer shots than us and had lower shots on target both got relegated. So it's uh, reflective of the fact that I think even when we did take shots, the finishing, the execution was just simply lacking. And again, you can chalk that up to personnel, but we know players throughout the team went through spells of just generally poor form throughout the year. Yeah, I think, I mean, and and we know Townsend, I mean, as I I know we kind of scrutinized him for his overall contributions to the team, but like the first half of the season, uh, Townsend seemed to find his firing boots uh, sometimes. And I think he ended up being somewhat of a miss in the second half of the season, uh, whether that's ironic or not. Oh, I think you're, I I think you're right. I I think there's no question about that. And you just kind of look and, you know, kind of bake in the numbers a little bit and see, some of the guys, especially the guys that brought in, and maybe they were just comfortable um, with the way Benitez wanted to play, but some of the guys actually had very good seasons in terms of finishing, but, um, you know, not enough, obviously. Um, and, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, some guys started out well, like Damari Gray hit a couple bangers in early towns, and those are two obvious ones, right? But then you look at our main guys, our main scoring threats, and Dominic Calvert-Lewin in his brief moments playing didn't finish well. Rondon didn't finish well. Um, Richarlison did not have a good finishing year. You know, those types of things. I, I still don't think, though, truly, in my opinion, the finishing is what I would have necessarily picked out to say is really that big of a problem. And look, these things fluctuate a little bit, you know? I know people say, well, come on, man. You get 385 open sh- play shots. I mean, that's... That's a, a big enough sample size. Well, yes and no. You know, all it takes is a couple to go in. You know, goals get scored in strange ways. So um, I think this is important to an extent, but I think the collective way, if we can play a little bit differently, I think we're our goal should be more generating better and more chances. I, I, I think, you know, this year and maybe it's injuries again, guys like assuming we can keep someone like a Richarlison, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, I think these guys will finish okay. Okay. Would it be nice to add some guys that can maybe bang in a shot a little bit better? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but I think when you look at this comparatively to some of the other numbers, and we'll get to them in a second. Some of the other numbers though, just strike you as just completely horrid. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, you look like, again, like you said it right at the top, non-penalty goals minus non-penalty expected goals is only minus 1.5 puts us 12. So it's really, we finished about as well as could be expected given the chances we got. It wasn't a complete disaster or anything like that. As you said, I think it's it's more of a volume thing. You get more looks, you score more goals. Can't can't score if you don't shoot. Yeah, so let's talk about the roots of that. And let's move on to our ability to keep the ball. 
That's great. So look, I'm not saying <laughs> that possession. So yeah, painful. this is pretty bad. I know. So <laughs> possession retention is what we've bucketed this at. And look, I- I'm not one of those people that believes you need to have great possession in order to be good. Um, that being said, the numbers would indicate that most of the people playing European football, with the exception of like West Ham, <laughs> all kept the ball very well. I remember last year we looked at this number, James, and I think uh, when we did it, maybe this, maybe it was me and you, Alex. Actually, there was only one team that made like top four or even one team that was in the top six of any of the big five leagues that had a possession number below 50. And that was West Ham. I think Atletico Madrid was like the only one close and they were like 51.1. So look, even as a defensive tactic, keeping the ball is not a bad thing. And I think we agree watching this team. It's like, God, we made some bad, bad plays with the ball. But I I think breaking down these numbers, I think this is probably of all the section we go through is the most enlightening. So let's bang out a couple of these and get some reactions because they're pretty bad. Possession, according to FB ref, our possession number was 39.7%. That is last in the Premier League. Actually, it's last in all the top five leagues. Literally the worst possession number in all five leagues of any team. Worse than Burnley. No offense to Burnley. It felt like it too. Didn't it? Uh, now, Y Scout had us at 41.5%. That would have made us 17th in the Premier League. That doesn't make me feel a lot better. Um, but look, touches per 90, 17th. Now, the interesting part about that was, though, put it this way, and th- this speaks to the point. Possession doesn't matter as much if you're not getting many touches as long as they happen in a good place. So I got to admit, to some extent, the percentage of our total touches that actually happened in the final third was 28%. That's actually seven. And the percentage of touches, our total touch in the penalty area was six. But look, the bottom line is still, if you don't have that many touches to begin with, that's great. You have a high percentage of the touches you have in those areas. You still don't have many touches. But look, I think it's very obvious why so many of our touches happen in those areas. And the thing is, you can have a lot of touches in those, those areas, but we clearly didn't do much of them. So... What does that tell you? And when we get into passes, it's really obvious. I mean, it seemed to me it was pretty obvious when you watch it. Yeah, we hoofed the ball up there a lot, but what did we do with it when we got those touches up there? Not enough, clearly. Yeah, it, it's just a function of the hoof ball, right? We never really passed the ball around through the midfield. We didn't play through the midfield a great deal. So it but makes that sense can that can work to some extent, right? Totally. They no, can. It, and, and I'm with you, Ryan. I, I'm not like a... Uh, every team has to play like Barcelona and just control the ball for 87 of the 90 minutes. You can certainly make it work. But as we saw with the shooting stats, you know, you get the ball in the final third in the penalty area even, and yet our shots per 90 are 15th. So we're hoofing it long, but we're not seeing a whole lot of opportunities to score from getting the ball in those dangerous areas, even if that's a lot where a lot of where a lot of our possession came in the limited time that we had the ball we were we may have got the ball up in the final third but from there oftentimes very isolated players dominic calvert lewin solomon rondon etc isolated and not able to play uh anyone in behind or with a lot of support but to alex's point it, it felt that way right at times alex it felt like we just had so few chances like every time we had it in the final third you were hoping we would get a scoring chance because there were so few i mean those numbers kind of play out they indicate what we saw, don't they? Pretty, I think. Yeah, I mean, our our game plan legitimately, le- legitimately for like three months straight was let's like pass it to Damari Gray and see if he can run really fast and just hit a banger. Like it, that, it was seriously just let's see what Gray can do. And you know, Rondon was in there like chugging along, maybe half fit coming over from China. Right? Um, there was no consistency at all. 
So I, it was just, it was a mega pain to watch. It was brutal. And I hope we'd never have to sit through anything like that again. So some more numbers on to tack on to the misery here in terms of possession retention. So um, miscontrols is a commonly used term that just means you've made a bad touch. Basically, you've lost the ball, um, bad pass, whatever. Um, dispossessions is another one where you actually have possession and you lose it. Miscontrols, we had almost 13 per 90. We're 19th in the league. That is really bad, especially considering how few touches we had to begin with. I mean, that's where you look at and you'd be like, oh my heavens word. But if you think about if a higher percentage of our touches happened in the attacking third, that that does make sense. But that volume number, that that is that is staggering if you think about it, to have so few touches and have such a high number there. Now, dispossessions was ninth in the league, but we didn't possess the ball that much to begin with. So that, that actually makes perfect sense that that would be the case. Ninth is actually pretty bad if you think about how few times, you know, how much little possession we had to begin with. But so so think about it. so So the real question is why? Um, and I, one thing that's very obvious is, and Alex was saying it kind of before we got on the pod, so the one thing, there's a measure out there called um, passes per defensive actions. And the way it's measured, uh, Scout does it in their way. They measure it. It's basically a way of measuring, and they only measure it kind of in your um, defensive third or, or the person that's putting the pressure on the, their attacking third. Um, and they also measure PPDA against. And sure enough, uh, the lower the number, the more you're doing it actually. But we have the highest PPDA against um, the lowest number, the highest percentage of anyone in the league, meaning as teams pressured us higher more often and more <laughs> effectively than any other team in the league. And look, let's be honest. We couldn't deal with pressure and everyone knew it. And they continued to pressure us all year as high as they possibly could. And we struggled with that. And I think, you know, to your point, Alex, it felt like it, it was so obvious watching it. Right. And that number just, I mean, I, there's no way that number has been anywhere near that in the past for Everton, I don't think. But was it not? It was so obvious we just could not deal with pressure almost anywhere on the pitch. But even in our own end, just we had no consistent way to, to get away from it. And, and really, even when Frank took over to try and get us to play a little bit different to enjoy the ball, we still struggled in that regard, didn't we? Yeah, even when even when Frank came in, you know, you saw the first couple matches, we tried to do a little bit of the passing it around the back to retain possession. And then we fell into this routine of kind of Groundhog Day where we would come out of the gates, we'd play really well to start, and then after about 20 minutes, teams would just say, okay, let's ramp up the pressure. These guys can't handle it. And all of a sudden, we're giving the ball away in super dangerous areas. We look completely put off our game. And then we would, you know, concede and any semblance of a good start would go out the window and we'd be subjected to 60 plus minutes of us running around like chickens with our heads cut off and or, couldn't even kick. Go ahead. Or what would we do in the back when we felt pressure once we realized we couldn't play around it? What happened? Boot it. Full send. Send yeah. it into the final third and pray and let uh, the front three try to run it down with uh, very little effect. And that's and it. And the lack it, of Calvert-Lewin just it nail in the coffin right there, right? Yeah, so we're going to get into that too because some of those numbers are pretty amazing, especially in aerials and things like that. But we did a little breakdown on here where we kind of looked at, okay, the miscontrols are really embarrassing, 19th. So let's look at like how many touches for each person produced one miscontrol. I thought that was an interesting exercise. And look, you, you got to know what position they play. So 
not surprisingly, the numbers were very high for the guys that were in more advanced positions because ultimately it's hard to keep the ball there. It's easier to have a bad touch when you're under pressure and whatnot. And and look, who was the highest? Dominic Calvert-Lewin was amongst the highest, right? Um, who else did we have in here that was a pretty high number? Uh, Solomon Rondon was very high. Um, Richarlison was very high. And those are the three guys that ended up playing that center forward position so often. But it's also a fact of being so isolated up there. Like it's one thing if you're going to play hoofball, but then you have to orient your whole team around it, win that second ball, you know, because it, bare minimum, even if Richarlison wasn't winning a lot of aerials clearly and cleanly, at least in the second half of the season, he would get his body into people. He would at least find some ways to make it so they didn't win it so cleanly. But then it's up to the rest of the team to make up the difference for that. Now, for me, I think some of the more fascinating numbers are you look at like, how many touches in the attacking area per one miscontrol. And some of these numbers are bad. I mean, when you start to look at like guys like Alex Wilby looked okay, actually, he did a decent job retaining the ball. And I think when he plays right, he does. Um, Damari Gray's numbers are actually pretty respectable. But then you look at some of the other guys in those wide areas, like Anthony Gordon, too many miscontrols. If, if you think about the, the amount of touches he had in, you know, attacking areas, he really had trouble keeping the ball at times. And, I mean, Richie just looks bad all the way around. I mean, there are a lot of guilty parties here. Um, but look, I mean, there is some hope, I suppose, in some of the players being able to deal with this. And look, let, let's be honest. If Frank is not going to be hoofing the ball up quite like this, I, I don't think. So hopefully we can avoid some of this now. But before we get into the solutions, too, I want to go through the passing and receiving elements of this. But I mean, I, I can't. This is not going to be a repeat of this this year, right? For the love of God, I hope not. Because, you know, you're talking about our, our passing the hoofball thing, which we'll, we'll say more about. But the hoofball as a means of, like, offensive production, when more often than not, it just felt like, you know, we got to get the ball out to prevent us from conceding. It wasn't like a means to an end of let's create on the opposite end of the pitch. It was like, we're getting overrun. We need to relieve the pressure for just a moment. So let's just get it down pitch. We can reset our defense, reset our lines and give the opposition the ball back and we'll try to defend again. Um, and I think that's a little bit reflected. And then, as you said, Ryan, I mean, some of these numbers are, are really poor, but a lot of it. And, and I think that is partially due to the fact that because we were hoofing it to relieve pressure, there wasn't the support structure in place, even when we could win aerials, which we didn't do very well. There's no one there to pick up the second ball. We talked about the second ball. We talked about Solomon Rondon so much about what he's good at, knocking the ball down for the guy who's behind him to then carry on and build into an offensive uh, attack. And so often he might win, which he actually didn't win a ton, but he did okay. And it would just be, he'd be alone. He'd be the only guy within 30 yards. It'd be ridiculous. And so... It just led to this vicious cycle of, frankly, pain and uh, really hard to watch football for Everton. Some of the passing numbers are absolutely horrendous, too. Let's move on to that real quickly, because it's all kind of part of the same conversation. Passing receiving section, sub element of our attack. Passes per 90, 18th. Pass accuracy, 18th. So we didn't make a lot of passes. And the ones that we made, we weren't accurate at all. Um, pass rate per minute of possession. We're last. It's good. Um Passes out of bounds. This is my personal favorite stat. We had 374 passes that went out of bounds. Like that's really, you think about it, man. Wow. We almost had more passes out of bounds than we had shots from open play. God, that's so bad. I know. Isn't Pain. that bad? 
Yeah, that's one where you look at, you're like, oh my God, uh, that's bad. It was really close, actually, shocking. Um, so look, passes under pressure, we were 12th. We didn't have as many as you would think, but you know, we were pressured at times in our own end. Um, but the difference was, uh, you know, look, we didn't make many passes, so that's why it didn't look that high. But the per- percentage of passes that we did make under pressure relative to the number of passes we had was the highest in the league. 20 over 20% of all of our passes we attempted, we were under pressure when we made them. Again, I mean, the pressure just absolutely killed us. I mean, the receiving percentage, which I think is actually a really important um, element and component of, of keeping the ball in retention, 78% 19th in the league. So look, we, we've explained how and why this has happened. These numbers are, are pretty bad. Um, yeah, I, I think actually, I think it's you, James, who has an interesting observation too. Putting two men in midfield definitely hurts our ability to kind of control a game um, unless you're really building out of the back and you have center halves that can progress the ball up the field and really pass it, which I'm not sure we we do. Um, and Frank got very pragmatic at the end, playing a lot more three, kind of four, three, but he was playing to play behind the ball and try and eke out results. Um, at times when Delph was in there and we played okay football, obviously the... the um, the possession was better. Um, but look like, yes, the pressure killed us, uh, before and, and possession retention was bad, but do we have a lot of good passers on this team? Because I think this is just as much fault. Like it's one thing to be able to keep the ball, retain it, fight someone off, you know, move into space. Like movement is really important to keeping the ball, but our ability to just pass the ball. I mean, God, I just feel like we lack a lot of good passers on this team. I mean, how do you guys feel? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty evident, too. And we we talked about um, I think it, it's not a surprise that a lot of our best passers were also synonymous to our best creators. Um, and, and and it was clear, too. I mean, you know, it, there are other guys like, you know, maybe Gomez, for example, who might be a better passer, but really was not going to fit in the setup and was also injured through points. Um, so we couldn't utilize him at all either. And obviously he definitely wouldn't have fit like like we said, in a two man midfield. So, um, you know, it was it was a lot of things. It was missing players in different positions that didn't really give us options, kind of like what we talked about. Um, and it was just the fact that we had guys that were not, you know, no longer with us on the team. <laughs> I was about to sound terrible. <laughs> no, it's true. But, but that begs the question. So, okay. So look, we're not good at keeping the ball. That's pretty obvious. And we're not particularly great at passing, or at least we weren't based on the numbers. So look, we talked about what our solutions are to fix this, because I think these are, these are really incriminating numbers. I would say if there's one singular area that we just have to improve upon, it's our ability to keep the ball and pass the ball and move it around. I mean, just even if we're not finishing the final third, dear heavens, just keeping the ball a bit to cut our defense a break is so absolutely critically important. Um, how do we solve it? So we said we're going to ex- explore kind of three elements of solutions. One's kind of play the better players, the players we have now. Um, number two is tactics. Can we fix some of this with tactics? And number three is recruitment. Like that's the big element. You know, what do we really need? Do we have gaps here that we need to fill? So the first question is play the better players. Solution number one, I asked this question, who is a good retention possession player on Everton? Um, and it's not just passing. I mean, you should ask that question too. Like who's a good passer too, but it's about movement and receiving too. So, I mean, it's all elements. So you got to at least have some elements of this. So if I were to ask you guys, okay, Who's the best possession player in Everton? Who's the best passing player? Who's the best, you know, moving and and creating time and space for other people? Who are some of the names that you guys would come up with? 
Well, I think right off the bat, player that jumps out is a guy like Alon, who has proven to be in other teams. And again, you have to look at these guys' history because players come to Everton and they are set to play a certain way and it doesn't necessarily highlight their strengths. Alon is one of the best possession players at Napoli in all of Europe. He was an unbelievable box-to-box midfielder. He could create in the final third. He could do all sorts of different things. And then he comes to Everton and gets shoehorned into this slightly different role. Then another guy who didn't see a ton of time this year due to injury is Fabian Delph. Played in some unbelievable Manchester City teams. We know how well they possess the ball. And you know some of his strong numbers in those teams are a function of the players around him. But still, we know that that is a type of setup in which he can play and excel in. Phenomenal passer, Delph. I mean, say what you want about him. He's both progressive and accurate. I mean, he and he moves into space. I mean, he helps support our possession. He could really, really pass. I mean, people kind of forgot about that because he was always hurt all the time. But yeah, Alon can receive a ball so well. And those little tiny moves that he could make in tight spaces that allow you to keep the ball and then create time and space for someone else to progress it, absolutely missed. You know, I, I would say, especially, I always point to the back line because I felt like continuity in the back line is really important, but it's also a rhythm and a tempo thing. I mean, Yerry Mina in many ways does just as much for us in possession as he does defensively. I mean, how many times, even when Delph was in there, did we see our defensive line guys would get the ball and they were almost scared to play the ball to the six, you know, but Mina's always been very comfortable making those short, tidy little passes. He has great touch on the ball and he can keep it because when he gets the ball, who the heck is going to get it from him? And that matters, right? That matters. You know, he's so big and just cuts people a break. And so he was a big loss for sure. Yeah, he was a ginormous loss. Um, well, no. So look, I mean, Mina was a big loss, right? But um, what about guys like like Mikalinka was there for half the year? I mean, we've seen him play so far enough. I saw him play a lot beforehand. He's a smart player. He makes good decisions with the ball. He doesn't push the ball up front. He doesn't hoof the ball unnecessarily. Like he values the ball. And that's part of the issue, too, because some of the other guys that ended up playing a lot. I mean, would anyone ever say Mason Holgate really values the ball? Mm -hmm. Uh, He is like the king culprit of the hoofed long ball. That's wildly inaccurate. So, no, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that's his strength. And I don't necessarily blame him for that. But I mean, that that's that's part of the factors here. What about DeCorey? Would we say he's a good I mean, wins the ball back a lot. So, I mean, that does matter. I mean, you can't ignore that. We'll get the defensive elements of it. But look, his passing numbers are actually really good this year. I mean, he's one of the few that actually did seem to value the ball, although I wouldn't necessarily say that's his game and, and an important thing. But what about Deli Ali? We didn't see enough of him, really. I mean, it's clear, right? True. He has he obviously has the technique and um in, in the small spurts we saw, I thought that it would definitely be the case. I mean, he's a pretty good player. We've seen it in the past, obviously, for Spurs. Um, so it's clear it is probably there. And you just look at the influence he made in like the Palace match where he comes in halftime and all of a sudden is we're retaining the ball better, we're moving the ball better in the final third, and we're actually creating chances, right? That's the type of thing that you think in an, in an ideal world where the Deli Ali move is smart and benefits Everton. That's what he brings to the side, and that's exactly what he can contribute to us possessing the ball and retaining it better. So so I like a lot of these names that we brought up. I think, I mean, really, which one of these guys played a lot of minutes? DeCorey, really, and I wouldn't say out of all the names you brought up, he's probably not the first on the list in terms of possession and retention, you know? Um, they didn't play a lot of minutes. He was fourth on the team in minutes, but then you look at Alon, he was eighth. And keep in mind, no one played a lot of minutes anyway, so being eighth on Everton is still just, you know, not many <laughs> minutes at all. Awobi was 11th, and I, I think, did we mention Alex Awobi? 
No, he didn't. But yeah, let's we talk know what about, he can do on the ball. Well, look, I mean, he's the one guy that moves. He comes back to the ball. And, and look, his bread and butter is probably creation in the final third and taking some of those risks. But when he's not in the final third, he's a very good retention player. He keeps the ball. He's smart. He moves. Um, Mikalenko was 15th. Obviously, part of that was because he was only here half the year. I mean, Mina was 17th in minutes played for Everton. Delph was 19th. I mean, injuries really hurt us in this regard, too. So it's not like Frank even had the options when he came in to build this type of side. It seemed like someone else was hurt every other week. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. So you would hope now some of these guys are gone. You know, Delph's gone. But you would hope these guys are going to be less injured than they were last year. I mean, it can't be. You know, I, sh- I say this every year, right? Don't do it, Ryan. I'm we not say going this to. every single year. There's no way we can have more injuries. It but was look, a complete anomaly. <laughs> but beyond that, it seems like Frank does favor some of these players. Like he's willing to play a Wobi. Totally. Um, yeah. And and Rafa was not. Um, so in Mikalinko as an addition, I think for the whole year, I think it's going to help us a little bit from a retention standpoint. So I, I think we will get a little bit of a bump by playing different players and just hopefully people staying staying healthy. Now, tactics, though. Tactics. It's hard to ignore that some of this is tactical. I mean, you can design passing sequences. And again, Frank was not given a lot of time to do this. I I don't know how often I saw this at Chelsea or Derby, but um, you can do this through design passing sequences and try and create movement. Um, And we see what Pep Guardiola does at at Man City using positional play, how, how he almost fabricates movement, you know, and it takes guys a long time to realize it. And that creates opportunities for possession. Um, but look, I mean, you need to cut out the long passes in one way or the other. I mean, look at the numbers. So you got long passes per 90 that, that we're defining that as over 30 yards, 18th, you know, meaning as the third most. Um, so, or actually, pardon me, let me, let me check that. Um, we're actually 18th, meaning it has the 18th fewest, but that's only because we just didn't make a lot of long, a lot of pe- total passes because 23% of our total passes were long passes by that definition. And that's the fourth highest. Wow. That's crazy. But even this, this is crazy. Even short pass completion percentage as a team is 84.1%. That's 17th. So look. So bad. I know it's so bad, but some of these guys can actually pass a little bit. So some of this has got to be a little bit tactical. Here's the one point when I was looking at numbers that really jumped out at me. Now, would you argue or suggest that our goalkeeper tends to launch the ball more than other teams? It's been that way for a couple seasons, yeah. And 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 we know that that can also be like one of Pickford's strengths in theory is like his every every now and then he'll just put one right on Richarlison's foot like in the final third. And you're like, wow, that's what this guy's capable of. But when one out of four of your passes is over 30 yards, that's that's crazy. And you're going to see some low percentages on those as a result. And that's easy to fix from a tactical standpoint, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of a choice. So think about goal kicks. And just, well, let's, let's talk about goalkeeper, like launch percentage, meaning a launch pass by definition of football reference, which I think is a good one is more than 40 yards of us for every goalkeeper pass 69.9% of them was a launch for Everton. That's second highest in the league. So let's compare it to the people across the uh, park, 22.2% man city, 23.9%. Again, Pickford is not Allison. He's not. Ederson. However, you go a couple years ago and Pickford was remarkably accurate in medium to short passes. By the way, if you want to look in some insane stats, and I won't give them here, go look up Ederson's this past year, short pass and medium pass completions. I'm pretty sure 
he was 100% on his short passes and only missed one medium pass all year, according to the numbers, and took like almost 500, maybe even more than 500 of them. Now, it's not insane that that happens with some keepers, that they have really good percentages, but with the volume that he produced, it's it's insane to look at. I, I thought it was a misprint. I thought there's no way it's right. Anyway, so sorry. And it's very clearly a tactical thing. You don't have to be a genius, tactical genius, to know that Liverpool and Man City are going to try to play the ball short. They have the players to do yeah. so. But it's also a decision when Frank is saying, okay, you know, more often than not, we're just going to hoof it long. Like that's well, not Pickford taking it upon himself to let me just launch every single one of these into the stratosphere. Well, and that, that's why I look at goal kicks because goal kick is, is a tactical decision. Yes. The goal kick, you know, the goalie has to make that decision, but our launch percentage off goal kicks was 82.4%. That's fourth highest man city, 24.8 Chelsea, 33% Tottenham, 37%. So that's a pretty big difference. And Again, I don't want us just to be passing ball around in the back for no reason whatsoever, but it can alleviate some pressure on your defenses when you're doing that. But that's design. You know, I mean, Frank certainly didn't have that much time to get on the training pitch and deal with that. But I can assure you after watching him play, you know, his teams play at Derby and Chelsea, that they did a lot of build out stuff. Um, now, look, I'm OK with that launch thing, you know, launching that many goal kicks if I felt like, you know, our, our completion percentages relative to the rest of the team, the rest of the league for long passes was really high. Was it? Nope. 35.1% completion percentage on launched goalie passes. That's 15th. Now it's not all the kicker. So I'm not, this isn't me throwing Pickford under the bus here. Alex is your observational point was when Richarlison's playing up there, it's very different than I'm going to Calvert-Lewin playing up there. Yeah, I mean, Richie lost more aerial tools than anyone else in the league, which I think it's, what, 24.5% win rate? So it's uh, completely Ouch. different. We know, like, Richie is best anyway when he's, you know, facing forward, running at defenders, and that's, you know, that's another part of the problem, right? He wasn't he wasn't utilized to his strengths just like, you know, obviously a lot of players were not able to be. So Yeah, it's not like it's not for lack of trying, right? Richarlison tries so hard to win the ball in the air, but oftentimes he just kind of, doing like a basketball box out on the center half and trying to like stick his butt into him so he can't win it as easily. And, you know, for context on that 24.5% win rate, you look at someone like Solomon Rondon, who won 41% of his aerials. Dominic Calvert-Lewin won 47%. But what's crazy is that Dominic Calvert-Lewin, well, what first thing is crazy is that he played the 13th most minutes for Everton in the Premier League this season, which given how long he was out, that seems wow crazy to me. But... He was second on the team in total aerials one, despite that and the fact that he was out for such an extended period of time. So you think you plug him in, you start hoofing it. Well, you're going to start seeing slightly better results, but it's still not really a strategy that I think is sustainable for Everton to build a team around that successful long term. No, it's not. And and so let's look quickly at kind of what Frank did. I mean, I, I think the one thing that Frank did really well and a good comparison is when he took his Derby team and he really changed the way they played. So think about this. In his first year, he took over. Now, granted, he had some good young talent come in. But look, they went from, I mean, they basically totally changed the team around. You know, suddenly they had a high passing rate. I think they were sixth in the championship, 20th in long passes. So that dropped dramatically. It was much higher before. Um, and again, we're going to have to learn how to build from the back. But like they didn't face a lot of pressure. They were 21st because they were used to dealing with a little bit, you know, and, and it's a different league. I get it. Look, teams are going to pressure us until we prove the fact that we can play around it. But look, I mean, if we can create more movement, more passing sequences, 
and have some better design and breaking pressure. I mean, I think you can fabricate some of that through tactics, and I think we would expect Frank to do it. However, it still brings you to solution number three, and that's recruitment. So there is a little bit of a scary element to this, and that is when we did play short passes, things didn't seem like they went really well. This is James had a field day with this one. He thought this was a hysterical number. It's a small sample size, but it's kind of amusing either way. This is like one of the worst things I've read about Everton. And you think about the frustration with the long ball. And then, as I said earlier, Frank comes in and I think he tries to immediately change that style. And like, oh, all right, lads, let's let's enjoy the ball. Let's enjoy the ball. And then you look at the season as a whole. The top seven matches where we had the most short pass attempts, one draw, six losses. So clearly telling the team to try to enjoy the ball was actually a recipe for complete disaster. Ouch. Yeah, in other words, if we had greater than like 35% possession, we were screwed. Which you think is even more depressing to say out loud. <laughs> oh, it's pain. Yeah, I mean, so look, I, you know, some of these guys playing more will be helpful, but I, I think ultimately we 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 do need players in certain areas that are better at certain these at some of these aspects. I mean, right half, right back, pardon me. I mean, Seamus is, is can dribble and keep the ball a little bit, but, you know, he's not not the greatest to kind of shorten medium passes. Um, and you can't expect him to play all game. And, and Patterson is very vertical and very aggressive. Um, maybe his pace will keep people at bay more, maybe. Um, and he's not a bad decision maker with the ball. Maybe he could help. But I, it's hard for me to say if Delph is gone, and I, I'd be interested to see if Bameen, what happens with him. I got to believe, I mean, Frank, for the most part, played 4-3-3, 4-1-4-1 out of possession at Derby and Chelsea predominantly. And no doubt he went to 3-4-3 at times um, to be pragmatic. It was funny at Chelsea when Conte was out, he was always like 3-4-3, <laughs> um, which is kind of interesting and somewhat telling. And he did the same thing with us. I mean, he had us playing 4-3-3 for a while, for a whole month. And we were playing defensive-oriented in that way. And then he switched to kind of that, you know, 3-4-3 or almost 5-4-1 at times when Awobi was floating out playing playing right wing back, you know, in a very defensive setup. So I, I think you got to expect, my guess is Frank's going to want to try and play the 4-3-3 and he'll switch the three in the back to be pragmatic and whatnot. But if that's the case, I, I think we're really missing that kind of, maybe he'll want to play Decore in that kind of six role behind the two kind of center mids, maybe. Um, I don't think he quite has the discipline to do that. We've talked about how more effective we think it would be if Decore was playing that eight. I think he needs that profile that can sit back and kind of support possession and almost keep the tempo up and move the ball um, and protect the center backs. And I think we need improvements in the center back and their ability to pass the ball to that player and, and just move the ball around without giving up the ball. Um, I think to me, at least that's what I say. I'm curious what you guys think. Like those are the three areas I would say that when it comes to kind of keeping the ball better, just passing in general, um, I, I really think having that support function behind us, I don't see the profile defensive mid, and I'm not so sure I see the profiles with our current center back. So I could see movement in that regard. Patterson's a big question mark. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, just agree all, all around. I mean, it's pretty clear we need all three. Um, you know, I think we've hit on it too, like numerous times throughout the season, uh, <laughs> probably too often than we really wanted to, uh, but Either way, I mean, it makes it makes sense. I think I look forward to seeing in general just how, you know, Frank sets us up next season, depending on, you know, who we're able to get and how it looks. 
of any of those positions we talked about, defensive mid, fullback, center back, which one would you say, Alex, is the one that you think could make the biggest impact in terms of passing and, and retention? Definitely a, a number six a defensive midfielder. I think it. I think I think our players, um, our other midfield players, would greatly benefit from it. It's one of those pieces where, you know, obviously we can get a fullback or a or a center back, and we'll improve offensively. Um, you know, better passing out of the back. But I think that player specifically as defensive midfielder will make um, others benefit far greater than the other pieces um, in total. Yeah, I, I agree with Alex there. I mean, I, just someone to be able to drop back, receive the ball off the center halves and turn and play the ball forward. We saw Delph do it at times. I think we need someone much improved over him. And it will it will just unlock so much potential for the rest of our midfielders to be able to do the things that they're good at and not have to moonlight as this pseudo six that actually doesn't really have all the tools but is forced to do so out of necessity. Um, the other thing I think is the center half position, right? If Depending on what we do with Mina... If he stays, he has to be healthy, but a guy alongside him who's a little more equipped to get and, and play a higher line to close that proverbial gap and cut out a lot of the stuff over the top from the opposition, win the ball back, and also someone who can be a little bit more accurate with some of the long balls and not uh, and just be better under pressure and more composed will we'll do wonders. The fullback thing, look, I'm only excluding that because I'm sick of saying we need a, a right back, like long-term right back for like the third season in a row and it not being addressed, but they're all really important. And I think it's, if you see all three address this window, we're going to be in for, I think a very positively improved Everton over the course of the, the next season. That's what's so difficult. You look at a guy like Alon that's really important as a possession player that could maybe play um, in possession, that kind of deeper lying player to kind of tie everything together. But, you know, defensively, he's not going to protect the center halves kind of in the way. And you, you'd want him more progressive with it and being that more possession type guy in the middle of the field, I think. And and so I, I don't think that if you needed to put him there, that's fine, you know, but I don't think that's something you want to go to. But he's got a year left. So what do we do with him? Like, that's a really big decision. And I think on top of that, you have Yerry Mina. I mean, what do you do with Yerry Mina? I mean, Yerry Mina's got no Colombian commitments this year. They're not in the World Cup. There's no Copa America for him to play this summer. In theory, he has a chance to get fully healthy. He's got one year left on his deal. He's far and away our best center half. He's certainly our best in possession. Not to mention the other question is this. So say when Frank, say Frank does want to get pragmatic, he's still got to hold the ball a little bit. Who plays the middle? And if it's Yeri, or maybe it's Michael Keane, maybe he stays and can kind of play the middle. Well, who are the guys? Like you can't play three in the back with a whole lot of success without having a right or a left center half that can move the ball a little bit. Yeah. I mean, those guys either got to be able to be able to progress the ball a little bit via pass because there's no six anymore now. And if there is, now it's really hard because now you've basically got one person in midfield in front of them, even if you play narrow. So how do you do that? How do you accomplish that? I mean, you got to either be able to carry the ball a little bit on those wider center backs or progressively pass the ball. Now, Ben Godfrey did profile at one point as that type of player. Uh, we didn't see that. Maybe we will. I, I would. I, I don't think we we should write him off for that. Mason Holgate kind of thinks he is that player. I don't think he really is. Um, do we have anyone that's left-footed? I mean, Brantwaith, you could argue, is both-footed, but I don't think he's ready to be taking the burden. I, I think he has great potential in that area, right? I think he could be progressive. He he shows ability to cut through lines from the back. He's definitely pacey. I and mean, would you feel comfortable just slotting him in whenever we needed a left-center back? So I, I think that's – it's interesting, right? I mean, there's – 
I, I mean, and what do we do with Niels and Kunku on the, on the left fullback? I mean, do we look maybe for the type of player that can play maybe backup left back or also play in that kind of left center back role? Or do you see Mikalenko drop back that way? I don't think that's a good idea because I don't think he's the greatest necessarily defending in space against a bigger opponent. I think he'll get bullied a little bit. He's not that physically strong, even though I think he's a good player. This is hard, right? I mean, this is... There's so much. There's so much if then with Everton, right? If you move this guy out, it then allows you to do this. And yes. If you bring this guy in, you can move the other guy out. There's so many things that need to happen, and we're sitting here on June 20th, and very little has happened concrete. We have plenty of rumors flying around, plenty of potential moves, but we haven't seen anything concrete about players leaving, namely the ones that were that are going to generate us the big bucks. So. I think we're going to see a very different Everton come August than we see now. But I think the first domino has to fall in some respects where we got to start moving a guy out to allow us to bring guys in or we just got to get better clarity about what depth we're going to have at positions. Are we going to decide to move Mina? Does Allen get a move? I personally think we sit on Allen's last year of his contract. I think he's a good enough player. Yeah, he leaves on a, a free in his 30s. I think I think that's a, a trade off. But. That's Thelwell's task, and he certainly has uh, plenty of work to do in terms of building out a team to even execute on this vision and then making all of these really difficult personnel decisions. But if he were to listen to this pod, um, he might uh, come away with some ideas on how to proceed. Or you might extend him. I mean, honestly, Alon seems like he loves it. I mean, he's got his yeah. luxury box there at Goodison where his family's always at and stuff like that. And he seems to like it. And maybe he could be the mentor towards players, you know, younger players that we bring in. I, I don't know. I mean, but those, the Mina and the Alon decision, I think are the first really big decisions that this staff has to make. And um, that's hard because it's a function of not just how good the players are, but what's the market look like? And what do the sports science guys say about Mina? I don't know. It's really hard. Like, can you imagine if he's gone? Ooh, that's a bit. I know he didn't play that much last year, and we suffered as a result. I mean, he's a difference maker when he's in there. I mean, the numbers indicate. I mean, he was like the only guy with like a positive plus minus in the whole team, and it wasn't even close. So I don't know. These are tough questions. Food for thought for sure. Alex, any last commentary? James, so I, I think ultimately, I think this is probably a good place to break for at least part one. Um, part two, we're going to continue on kind of the approach, and we'll look at some different things. We'll look at kind of progression. And uh, some of the creation ability we have and are those areas where we think we really need to improve to help the attack. And then we'll get all the way through the defense, too. We'll even talk about goalkeeping and um, just kind of stylistic approaches from a defensive standpoint before we wrap it up. And then we'll hit set pieces. And by the end of this, we'll all understand thoroughly the issues with Everton and how to fix them. Right. And we'll all have addressed our lingering trauma from last season and we can finally put this season to bed is this therapeutic because i keep seeing these numbers and i'm like having twitches and stuff. Uh, I, I don't know if i think at the end we'll hopefully uh come out with some sort of uh consolation feeling a little bit better about this whole ordeal as alex said at the very top it's been uh, somewhat nice to just take a step back and detach from this season this past season and, and look forward to kind of uh, hopefully next month we've got baltimore so much exciting happening in the world of Everton. I'm very much looking forward to it, as I know both Ryan and Alex are. So we appreciate you listening to this part one of our squad assessment. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. Helps us out a ton. If you have any feedback for us, you can email us, americantoffee at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. Send us a DM, all of those links at linktr.ee slash usatoffeepod. 
or as I said at the top, you should definitely join our Discord, invite.gg slash ATP. We'll be with you, as Ryan said, for part two, coming very shortly, release date TBD. But until then, and until next time, up the toffees.